following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Over the last 20 or 25 years, we have seen incredible technological advancements, right? That's pretty obvious, just light years over the last 20, 25 years. There's one technological advancement that I think might be my favorite, maybe not my favorite, but one of the most useful to me, uh, and that would be GPS mapping, right? Because it wasn't that long ago. Like, I remember uh, early, late 90s, early 2000s, I was traveling, playing music, and to find places that I'd never been, I had the big atlas in the back of my, my seat, and you pull out that big like it was like this big, and you're looking, trying to feel, okay, so I go here, and if you got into a city and trying to figure out where you're going, you had to look at the little pull-out map of this, the city, right? And, and you're trying to figure it out, and you had to have somebody there who could give you really good directions, like you had to turn left here and then right here, and you're trying to find that on that little map. And then when I was coaching, uh, I, I had MapQuest, MapQuest was the next, that was really good, because MapQuest would, would print you out turn-by-turn directions and give you the map and tell you how long it would take and tell you all the stuff you needed to know. The problem with that was you, you almost had to have somebody else reading it because you're, you're, if you're driving through the city trying to figure out, okay, I know, I know it's this street. Is that, no, how far should it be? Whoa, whoa. And you got to jerk the wheel back to get back on the road. But then came the beauty of GPS mapping. Now we all have, if you have a smartphone, you have, whether it's Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever, you have some kind of mapping thing on your phone. And it's incredible because now it tells you not only exactly where you need to go, it shows you the pictures, it talks to you and tells you so you don't have to watch it. And here's my favorite thing about it. When you get lost, and and I get lost, when you get lost, there's this calm, comforting voice. Turn right. Get back to the root, and it will tell you. It will direct you. It will get you back where you need to go. Even the best of us in our everyday lives, we have a tendency to drift off course, don't we? Whether it's in active disobedience or, or maybe it's just not having our hearts completely devoted to the Lord in that moment, we find ourselves off course and in need of correction. We need that calm, comforting voice saying, no, 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 turn up here. Get back to the root. You know that feeling, don't you? That feeling where you look around and you go, wait, how did I get here? Maybe you're just wondering, where in the world am I? And you're in need of that correction. See, over the past four weeks, in Nehemiah, we've, we've talked about identifying and engaging in our calling. We've talked about working together as a body to achieve our individual and, and our communal mission. And we talked about standing faithful in the face of whatever opposition may come against us. But the question we face today is, what happens when we haven't followed through on all of that the way we know we should? What happens when we get off track? In other words... How do we repent from sin and run back to the purpose, the providence, and the holiness of our God? Nehemiah 5 is going to talk a lot about repentance. And repentance is a, it's an uncomfortable discipline in our lives. 
but it's one that's necessary to get us back on track when we have strayed. And in today's passage, we're going to find three requirements, three helps for godly repentance through Nehemiah and his engagement with the people. And first, we're going to see that repentance requires inward assessment. Repentance requires inward assessment. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, We, our sons, and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back? They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, fresh oil that you have been assessing them. Nehemiah says, repentance requires inward assessment. As they are working on the walls, the people are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, this call that God has given them. A widespread outcry comes from the people. This is an outcry that comes due to the, the poverty of the people at the time. As it became difficult for them to buy food and, and meet their needs. Right? If you remember, we've talked about their sole purpose at this time was to rebuild the walls. People who were farmers left their farms and came to the city and built the walls. People who did all kinds of other work, left their jobs, left their source of income, came and began to rebuild the wall. And last week in in chapter 4, verse 22, Nehemiah said at at that time, right, as there was all this, this opposition coming against them, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. So these people have left everything, left their everyday lives, to come work on the wall. If you leave your job to go do some kind of mission and there's no income, how are you going to buy food? How are you going to meet the needs of the day ahead? And so the people were were poor. And in order to get food, they they were actually selling everything they owned. And once everything they owned was gone, they began to sell themselves into slavery. Now, This was a common practice in Nehemiah's day. People would often sell themselves into slavery in order to to cover the payment of debts, in order to gain what they needed. 
So why does Nehemiah have a problem with this at this time? Because again, this is not an extraordinary act. It's, It's a normal cultural act. Why is Nehemiah upset with this? Because he says the nobles, the wealthy, they're profiting from the misery of their brothers and sisters. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, God gives this instruction to the people of of Israel. Verse 19 and 20, he says, Do not charge your brother interest on silver, food, or anything that can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you must not charge your brother Israelite interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land that you are entering to possess. Nehemiah says, listen, you're not following God's commands. The problem with this is you are rejecting God in order that you might gain. And he confronts these wealthy people, which if you read it, he he includes himself in this. He confronts them and he tells them, listen, you guys must obey the Lord and you must set your brothers and sisters free and give back whatever you have gained in this process. Because God has called us to this mission, not so that you could gain, but so that we would work for his glory and his kingdom. And essentially what Nehemiah asks these people, he says, what is the purpose of what you're doing? Are you seeking the glory of the Lord or are you seeking your benefit? This is the totality of his question. What are you trying to do here? He wants them to assess their hearts, assess their motives, look and say, what what are we doing here? What are we trying to achieve? But he requires that inward assessment. Jesus talks about the inward assessment in Matthew chapter seven, verses three through five, passage you have undoubtedly heard before. I want you to hear what Jesus says. Matthew seven, verse three through five. He says, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. We've all heard that, right? You've, you've heard that before in some context or another. Let's be honest about the way that this passage is used. This passage is typically used as a defense against somebody calling you to look at your sin. Isn't it? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you tell me what to do. Look at the beam of wood in your eye. You can't, you can't tell me what to do. Don't worry about my splinter. Take care of your beam. That, am, am I wrong? I would bet at least nine times out of 10, and that is a scientific number that I just made up right now. <laughs> at least nine times out of 10, that is used as a defense passage. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, hey, here's how you stop other people from calling you out on your sin. He's saying, you check the beam in your own eye. You assess yourself. Don't worry about them. Examine your own eyes. But here's the thing. Inward assessment is hard and not at all fun. Inward assessment is difficult. It's way easier to look around us and look at everybody else and see what they're doing wrong and how they're not living up to our expectations and our standards. 
than to look into our own hearts and confront our own flaws and our own rebellion. But an honest assessment of our own hearts and our own lives is the necessary first step to repentance. Because we have to understand where we truly stand. We have to understand what is going on in our hearts and in our lives. We must know the wretchedness that God has forgiven in our hearts so that we can forgive those around us. We must know the selfishness in our own desires so that we can sacrifice them for the good of our brothers and sisters around us. We must know the utter hatred that exists in us so that we can repent and love others the way that Christ first loved us. Inward assessment is difficult. It is not fun, but it is a necessary first step. A recognition of our sin, of our failure, of our failings. So do we, when we feel that moment of lostness, knowing we need to get back, do we honestly assess our hearts and our minds? And do we become aware of where sin dwells in us? Repentance begins with an internal assessment, a revelation of the sin that lives in us. But next, the next step Nehemiah shows us is that repentance requires outward response. Repentance requires outward response. We see this in verses 12 and 13. Remember, Nehemiah has just confronted the wealth and he says, what you're doing is wrong. Stop trying to gain from your brothers and sisters misery and give back everything you have taken from them. Verse 12, they responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they promised. Repentance requires outward response. All right, first, just for a second, think back to the, the wealthy people's initial response to Nehemiah's confrontation. In the second half of verse 8, when Nehemiah first confronts them, it says they were silent and they had nothing to say. Inward assessment. They saw the guilt. They saw the sin. They knew what they were doing was wrong. Right? Hey, we messed up. We get it. What do we do? Nehemiah says, here's what you do. And as they examined themselves and came to term with with the sin that they were dealing with, the time came for them to respond. To not just see that there was sin there, but to do something about it. And they committed to obedience to the Lord and and they took an oath before the priests guaranteeing that they would take care of their Jewish family. They didn't just see the problem. They set about fixing it. James 1.22 says we must not be merely hearers of the words of the word of God, but we must be doers, right? Be doers, not just hearers. He says, if we're just hearers of the word, we know, we know what the problem is, but we're not going to do anything about it. He says, we deceive ourselves. We're not really serving the Lord. 
We're just recognizing there's a problem and trying to avoid it. So what James is saying is that, that knowledge is great, but we must turn the knowledge that God gives us into godly obedience and godly action. I like the way that Marcus Aurelius, who was a second century philosopher and the last emperor of Rome, he was not a believer, and there's some debate as to how much part he played in the attacks on the church and the believers at that time. But he said this, no longer let us talk about what kind of a man a good man should be. Be such a man. He says, don't just talk about it. Don't know the stuff you need to know. Do something about it. Act upon it. Right? God has given you the knowledge. If you set to that inward assessment, God's going to reveal some things in your life that need to be fixed, that need to be set right. And that knowledge means nothing if you're not willing to act upon it. See, repentance is not just a recognition of sin. That's the first part of repentance. Repentance is turning away from that sin and turning towards Christ and running after him with all that you have and all that you are. It does us no good to know the reality of the situation we're in if we're not willing to do anything about it. But that's a hard change, isn't it? It's hard. To say, listen, I'm I'm dealing with this sin. I know it's there. I know what's wrong. I know what's going on. I need to do something about it. Now what? How do we move from knowledge to action? I don't have all the answers for you, but let me give you three helps. Three great places for you to start today. If you've taken that inward assessment, you know the problem. You're not sure how to, to go about turning that from an inward assessment to an outward response. And, and let me just say this before we get into these. All three of these follow one important thing, and that is salvation. That is your submission and surrender to Jesus Christ. Because if you haven't taken care of that, nothing else you do is going to matter. Okay, so we got to start with that our surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. But after that, we want to change. We want to move from knowledge to action. First, publicly declare your need. Publicly declare your need. Okay, I struggled with how to actually word that because what I don't mean is, okay, now let's everybody come up one by one. We're going to confess all our sins to the church. That's not what that means. You don't need to let the world know every problem you're having. But if you're holding it all in, you're keeping it to yourself, just know that that's that's never going to work. David Paulison, who was a a Christian author and counselor, said it this way, and and many of you have heard me use this quote many times, uh, and I don't apologize. I'll use it many more times because it's phenomenal. But he says, things in a secret garden always grow mutant. Things in a secret garden always grow mutant. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
See, the point here is that sin hates light. Because light brings a sin to light. What is hidden remains dark. And it will fester. And it will grow mutant. And it will be destructive. And it will tear you apart. But in the light, there is life and joy and hope and freedom. If you're struggling with sin and you don't know how to get back, start right there. Make your need known. Number two, lean on a trusted advisor. Lean on a trusted advisor. We may use the term mentor here. Maybe it's just friend. But you need someone in your life who can help you through that process because I hate to break it to you, but you and I are not strong enough to change. Not in meaningful ways. We can alter our behavior for a little while and that's all well and good, but we cannot change based off our own strength and our own abilities. We need others to help us along, to give us insights when we're lost, to help us get back on track. And if you're not meeting regularly, and by regularly, maybe that's weekly, maybe that's monthly, I don't know what that means for you, but if you're not meeting regularly with some advisor, some mentor, some friend, someone who can help you walk through the trials and the struggles of your life, let me just encourage you today, find someone. Find one person you trust and be willing to meet with them. Here's a bonus to this. Right? You want to be someone who is that, that advisor, that mentor, that friend? Begin by serving others' needs first. See the needs, meet them. Show them how much you love them, how much you care for them. Build trust with them, that they might be able to walk with you, that they might lean on you in that time of struggle. So declare your need. Lean on a trusted advisor. Number three, and for me personally, this is the hardest one. Give it time. Ooh, I hate giving it time. I'm so impatient. But give it time. Don't expect things to happen overnight. Like, oh, I, I recognize this problem. Okay, here's my plan. Now I'm done. Nailed it. First try. Right? If you can do that, man, God bless you. But I cannot relate to you if that's, if that's you. It takes time. It takes work. It takes struggle. That's why you need to make sure that's known to other people. That's why you need a trusted advisor, a mentor, a friend, someone to walk through that with you. But be patient. Be faithful and be patient. Is this process difficult and uncomfortable and time-consuming? Yes, absolutely. Now let's go. When we acknowledge our sin, how will we respond externally to change and grow in the knowledge that God has given us to get us back to where God is sending us? Repentance begins with an internal assessment that results in an outward response. Third, and this ties into what we were just talking about. Repentance requires continual commitment. 
Repentance requires continual commitment. Nehemiah closes out this chapter saying, Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all I've done for this people. Repentance requires continual commitment. In, this, in these verses, we get a picture of Nehemiah's leadership and, and how he conducted himself as, as the governor over the people. And what it tells us is that he, as governor, was entitled to a special allotment of food. And he could even levy heavier taxes on the people so that he could gain, so that he would come out of his governorship more wealthy than when he went in. But instead of this, Nehemiah remained singularly focused. He kept his heart and his mind and his eyes on one thing, what God called him to do the building of the wall, the care of the people. How does this relate to repentance? Well, Nehemiah could have taken more than the people had. He could have lived it up while they suffered. But Nehemiah refused to compromise his position. No matter what was going on around him, no matter what opportunity came up, no matter what problem arose, Nehemiah refused to compromise. He was continually committed to God's calling in his heart and in his life. See, I think we too often compromise God's commands. And if we're honest, we all too easily compromise on the, the calling that God has given us for the sake of our, our desires in the moment and this only leads to, to defeat and emptiness as our insatiable appetite of our, our hearts grows deeper and deeper and deeper. But Nehemiah shows us that when we are continually committed to the kingdom of God, then we reap true rewards. Galatians 6, verse 9, again, the Apostle Paul says, Let us not get tired of doing good. Right? Let us continually do what is good. Let us not give up doing what is good. Let us be committed to doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. He says we will reap when it's the proper time. We will gain. We will be rewarded at the right time. Now we like the word rewarded. 
We like to think that means God's going to give us a little more money in the bank account or the newer car or the nicer house or the, the better job or whatever. But no, 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 no. This, this does not necessarily mean a social or a physical or a financial reward. Those things may come in our lives, but that's not the point. He says, what is it that we truly reap? What do we gain when we re- remain continually committed to the Lord and to his calling in our lives? It's joyful faith. It is a joy-filled, fulfilling faith. In Romans 15, 13, it's now, may the God of hope, I love that, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, you pursue me, you come after me, I will give you hope, I will give you joy, I will give you peace, I will give you the strength you need. When we commit ourselves to repentance and maintaining spiritual fidelity to our good, holy, perfect God, then we are reminded over and over again of just how good he is and how great the grace of Jesus Christ is in our lives. Because when we are pursuing him, continually committed to our God, and he never lets us forget the beauty of his creation. He never lets us forget his love for us. He, he never lets us forget that, yes, we have gone astray. We have turned our own way. We have done what we wanted to do in spite of what he called us to do, and we have run as far from him as we could, and yet he didn't leave us alone. He continued to pursue us and continue to love us and continue to give us a way back to him until the time came, just the right time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born into this world to show us truly how deep and how amazing his love is for us as Jesus walked perfectly through this world, never sinning, never straying, never faltering, never falling earning nothing but the glory of his father. And yet instead of the glory of his father, he was pinned to a cross to bleed and suffer and die. Not because of what he had done, but because of what you and I have done. God in his infinite love and grace and mercy sent his son to die for us so that he could rise leaving an empty tomb. That we would never forget that sin and death ain't got nothing on us. God will not let us forget that our home is not in this world, not of this place. It is in his kingdom. It is in his presence. It is by his side. And he brings us to himself, not through our goodness, not through our best acts, not through the fact that we have somehow earned it, but because Jesus Christ is perfect. He says, trust in me. And as our faith is in Christ, we are made holy and perfect by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, Satan won't stop coming after you. And your flesh will not be flawless in this life. We will all fail along the way, but a continual commitment to Jesus Christ gives us the clarity of his grace and his mercy, which leads us to repentance and brings us back to him as we rise up in his perfect calling after we have stumbled and fallen and strayed from him. The 
question is not, will we be perfect? The question is, will we commit ourselves to him continually? Chasing after Jesus Christ, pursuing him with all that we have and all that we are. Because his love alone saves us, delivers us, and lifts us up. Listen, are we daily reminding ourselves and daily committing ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ and committing our hearts to the joy of repentance so that we may glorify Jesus Christ in all that we do and all that we think and all that we say? Our lives in this world, again, are marked by an ongoing battle with our flesh. Our hearts and our spirits have have been renewed by God's grace the Holy Spirit's regeneration through our faith in Jesus Christ. But we still labor within this fallen flesh. And sadly, we all know too well that we slip and falter and and fail in the battle, more times than we probably care to admit. But our brokenness and our idolatry is not the end of the story. We fall back on God's indiscretion Incredibly beautiful and powerful grace. We rejoice that Jesus has paid the price for our sin with the blood of his sacrifice and that through him, the arms of the Father remain open to our undeserving selves. That doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. While we are forgiven only by God's grace, we must also remember that we are responsible to turn from our sin and to turn back to his love and redemption that has been so freely offered to us. To do this, we must take an an inward, honest assessment of our own hearts. We must engage in the outward response to Jesus' grace and mercy. And we must continually commit our entire lives to the worship of, the work for, and the dedication to the glory and honor of our King and His kingdom above all else. Church family, may we be strengthened today by the the truth and the presence of God's forgiveness. And may we go into the week ahead, ready to repent of all that we have allowed to stand between us and his presence. So that we might know him better. And so that we might show his majestic grace to the world around us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the, just the majesty of your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we stand here today knowing that we all have fallen short, knowing that none of us deserve to be accepted by you, but we also stand here with this incredible gratitude that in spite of who we are, you have loved us. You have redeemed us, bought us back from sin and death. That you have washed us clean. That you have not looked upon us as a people who tried really hard and did some nice things, but just couldn't measure up. Instead, you you look at us as your holy and perfect children who have been washed clean by the sacrifice of your Son. So, Father, with that in our minds, we come to you and we, we repent of our sin, the sin that, whatever it is that each one of us deals with. And we pray that you would give us the clarity to turn from that sin. And that through your spirit, you would give us the strength to run from it, to run into your open arms 
that we might be blown away once again by how much you love us and how amazing it is that we get to fall into your presence and be welcomed as your children in your kingdom. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And in your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.